Today's a little different. Um, we've been going through the Bible in order. It's taken us a bit, um, but Tabitha's been knocking it out of the park. And we got to this part, which uh, a lot of people like to call the, the silent years, the, the years between Malachi and Matthew. And uh, it, it really is, it's not a time of nothing. There's a lot that goes on during this time period. We kind of like, before we get to this time period, we have, uh, the Jews are living in Israel, and they are then taken out of Israel by the Babylonians, and when they return, when they start to flourish again in Palestine, they, uh, Judaism doesn't look quite the same. It's not the same outlook as what they had before. Um, the Torah is still important. It's not as if they've lost their belief or anything. It's just starting to take a different shape, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, so where this is going to take place is um, the intertestamental period is between Malachi and Matthew, but also we're going to look at Second Temple Judaism, which is different than the First Temple. Um, some things remain the same, as I said, but it just kind of fits together. Second Temple Judaism actually goes through the time of Jesus and the Apostles, um, up until you get to 70 A.D. when the, the temple is destroyed a second time. And um, the intertestamental period takes place within that space. So just to kind of start with the space and time when this is happening, um, Second Temple Judaism starts at 515 to 70. This is back when they were allowed to return under Persian rule to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Um, you get Ezra and Nehemiah there. Um, the intertestamental time, if you were to take out the second temple beginning, it's from 420 to 3 BC, though some feel 4 BCE, um, based on when the birth of Christ happens. Right now there's kind of an archaeological dispute because they're finding coins that have Herod's head on it still from 3 BCE. So now they're not quite sure what year. It's either 3 BC or 4 BCE that, that Christ was born. So they're kind of going through that right now. Um, one of the exciting points of this, for us, we share in Western civilization here in America. Um, and during this time period is where you get a lot of foundations for Western civilization. It's during this time period that you're going to get a lot of Greek ideas and Roman ideas. and things that we end up carrying with us up through Europe and uh, continue to affect both uh, Israel today and us. Um, so that's kind of the space and time. Tabitha has already talked about when they were taken out and when Babylon came in and they destroyed the temple and they scatter the Jews and they take back captives from Israel and Judah. And then in the process, something we don't talk about a whole lot is they also started sending Gentiles into the promised land after they had taken the Jews out. So that's where you start getting some of the peoples that are going to live and coexist uh, in that Israel of the current time. Um, but there's just some areas, the arrows kind of show where they were taken to, taken to Turkey, taken to modern-day Iraq. It's kind of where they were taken off to. Um, they were also spread throughout the Mediterranean at the on onset. Some of them, when they're allowed to come back to Israel, um, at that point, they've been gone from Israel so long that the temple doesn't mean quite as much as it used to to them. Um, and the Jews start returning like a small stream. Some of them have established lives in other places, and uh, some are coming home. But not all returned. Like I said, many set up Jewish communities. 
Uh, this is just an example of where they're coming from. This is an example of the Jews that came in during Pentecost. They're in Acts 2. Um, as you can see, they're just they're coming from all over. You got Rome, you got North Africa. Um, they're all filtering back in for Pentecost. And this is kind of an idea of some of the bigger um, Jewish settlements that are during Second Temple Judaism where they're living. So they really are coming from everywhere. The Jews have scattered across the Mediterranean at this point. Um, and of course, this is very important because uh, this time period is where we get Jesus. This is the time period that for whatever reason, um, Yahweh determined this is when the Messiah is coming. And I think there are specific reasons why he did. I don't know all of them. I am not God, but I can definitely understand why he picked the time that he picked. Um, so what I'm planning on covering today is to kind of bridge the gap for Tabitha between where she left off to where she's going to begin with the New Testament. Um, the Jews are politically busy, they're spiritually busy, and they become academically busy. Um, what is believed during this time period completely impacts the authors of the Bible and helps us understand the points of the authors and who they were addressing. Um, also during this point, uh, when they're starting to return back, they start writing part of what we have in our Bible. Um, it's when they wrote Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and they started putting together Psalms. The Psalms already existed, but they started collecting the Psalms. And again, this is the time period Yahweh chose to bring his rescue plan into completion. Um, just going back, we'll cover a little bit of what Tabitha had. We'll try to go really quickly. Uh, Babylon starts on top during this period. Um, they're always a dark cloud to the east. You have two different Babylonian empires. You have ancient Babylonian empires. Um, and then you have the current one that took the Jews out. Some people call it Neo-Babylon for New Babylon. Um, there's an old empire and a current empire, but they've always been there. Babylon has always sat in the Jewish mind frame and continues even theologically. People, even prophetically, still speak of Babylon in that, that presence. Um, Babylon was the largest city on earth at the time, um, 2,200 acres, over 200,000 people, uh, and then Nineveh was also very close. And uh, also shows you, I mean, 120,000 people in Nineveh, you could see why God cared about Nineveh and why he was sending Jonah. I mean, he was talking about, you repent or we're going to take you out, Nineveh. You're talking about 120,000 people. And so he had a plan. He wanted them, you know, you need to repent, you need to turn back. 120,000 people, I mean, God cares. And so that's why God sends Jonah. Uh, Nineveh's pretty big. Uh, Babylon represents the culmination of Mesopotamian culture and beliefs. If you remember going back to seventh grade or whatever they teach you that with Mesopotamia, you have all of that, and it just kind of keeps current with Babylon. Uh, again, Babylon had been in conflict with Yahweh, different religious beliefs, different things going on for thousands of years. Um, Babylon at this point still worshiping Sumerian deities, dating back, I mean, these Sumerian deities are dating back to Genesis times, and again, Abraham came out of that background. Um, just kind of telling you the size and scope and, of Babylon always being there. And again, Babylon broke the first temple. Um, Persians to the rescue, Cyrus the Great flips Babylon on its head. Cyrus is a Persian. The Persians are living in Iran. They kind of come in, sweep. They've been building up, and they kind of assume all of Babylon's territories. Um, 
Israel, just geographically real quick, Israel has kind of always been a buffer between uh, whoever's in power in the north and Egypt. So Egypt has a lot of influence in Israel up until you get into the mountains right when you get to Lebanon. And that's kind of like the natural geographic buffer between whatever the power is in the north and Egypt in the south. Um, and Persia was the same way. Persia just comes down. They, they get into the, Israel's kind of the buffer zone. They take Israel. Egypt's firm. And uh, so they come in, and then a year after Cyrus takes over, he allows the Jews to go home. They go back. They get the temple built. We enter Second Temple Judaism. Here's just an example of um, what's left of a Persian city, Persian place of worship. Um, and then Persia's having a good time until someone named Alexander the Great comes in. And this is going to be very, like I said, this is kind of a gap in the Bible. It's going to be very history-based. But Alexander came, came in. This is a famous mosaic. Um, Alexander is that guy that is on the left there, and Darius is the current ruler at the time of Persia, and he's on the right there forward. And uh, Alexander defeats him. This is very important for the course of Western civilization because it spreads Greek ideas and Greek values across all of the Mediterranean and even into India and um, down into Egypt. And you begin to get what is called Hellenism. We'll talk about that here. But Alexander the Great defeats Darius III in the Battle of Guagamela in 331 BCE. Alexander creates the largest empire responsible for spreading Greek culture. Um, Part of it is Hellenism. Now, this is going to have an impact on religiously what people are thinking at the time. Um, Hellenism is Greek culture blended with the things that they liked from Egyptian, Persian, and Indian influences. So it kind of becomes an augmentation. Alexander is conquering the world. Alexander doesn't care. If he likes this, he's going to pick this up. If he likes this, he's going to pick this up. And he's a very influential guy, so he starts spreading more than just Greek. He kind of spreads all these different thoughts. Along with that, he's bringing in a couple religious philosophical ideas, and you'll see where these kind of can come in and harm the minds of people. Um, He brings in Stoicism, which is people should just live in harmony with the will of God or natural laws that he put into place. So God gave us these natural laws, and as long as we just live with that and we live in harmony, we don't really need to deal with God. And then there's Epicureanism, which is the gods have no interest in humans anymore. God, the day of gods are done. Um, And that uh, they rule the universe, but they don't care about what's going on here. The only thing real are what your five senses detect, and you go from there. And so it kind of begins that... You see it very much in Western culture. There's a number of people who believe in God, or they'll be like, I'm a deist, I believe in God, but they also believe that God is on a distant distant place and he's let humanity go. I mean, that's, that's coming back from 2,500 years ago, that thought and that, that buy-in. So you can see how some of these ideas, um, Epicureanism trickles into modern-day Judaism now, a lot of Jews kind of believe along that line that God started everything up. and so Then we get Alexander the Dead. He didn't last very long. He lived hard, he conquered hard, and he played too hard. Most people think he died of alcohol poisoning from quite a binge. Um, he dies without a successor. He wasn't thinking about tomorrow. He didn't think he was going to die. 
And so as he's in the process, the, he gives his kingdom to four people to rule over. And because uh, he's only ruling for about nine, nine to 11 years, depending on who, who you're talking to. Not super important that you remember these names other than Ptolemy. Um, Cassander gets his Greece and Macedon portion of his kingdom. The Ptolemy gets Egypt all the way up into Israel. Again, using that natural buffer is kind of where it's going to stop. Um, the Turkey region goes to Antigonus, and the Seleucus gets the Iraq-Iran region. Uh, and Antigonus doesn't last very long. The Seleucids kind of eat up the Turkey region, and it's your first kind of combination empire of what now we would kind of think of as like the Arab world, kind of started with the Seleucids. Um, again, changed hands pretty quickly during upheavals, um, but Ptolemy rules the promised land at the end. So going, Persia let them go back. They're living there. Egypt now was kind of in charge of them again. So now they find themselves under the Pharaoh again. Um, Ptolemy I was a Macedonian. He's a Greek dude. He goes down. He was one of Alexander's best buds. He traveled around. He takes control of Egypt. And then on top of that, he decides to declare himself a pharaoh. And so now there's a pharaoh. There's a pharaoh kind of still in charge of Israel again, which does not make Israel happy. Um, He didn't really press it a whole lot. He did try to create a merged Greek-Egyptian god for everyone to worship and try to get everyone together. And it uh, didn't really take off very well, but he tried. Um, but he really pushes Hellenism. He's, he's one of Alexander's buds, and he wants that Greek culture and that whole everything spread. And so you get a lot of this Hellenism starting to seep into Israel. And the New Testament talks about that in a couple different places. Um, but Ptolemy, for the most part, if, the, uh, if Israel is paying their taxes and doing what they're going to do, as long as it's peaceful... He's good. Not too worried about it. Of course, Israel doesn't want to be under another dominion. Um, The Seleucids finally rise up, and they end up kicking out the Ptolemy dynasty. Um, And they they were trying to force Hellenization on the Jews. They were done with this Yahweh cult. They wanted it gone. They didn't like the stuff that didn't mesh with Hellenism. Um, and they tried to force Hellenization on the Jews. They also decided that they're going to outlaw Yahweh worship altogether. And this is where you start to get into your revolts. Um, let's talk a little bit about Hellenistic Judaism, because there's some things that we get from that. Um, this is where you get the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible, which a lot of our Bibles are based on. This is when that manuscript is written for the first time. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, So you get the the Hebrew Bible, and it's a translation from the Hebrew Bible and what was Aramaic into Koine Greek, which the Koine Greek is just, at that point, it's like the common people's Greek. It's kind of the Greek of the day. Um, Greek lifestyle starting to retain into Hebrew religion. Um, Some of the priests got to the point where, well, the the New Testament talks about the, the Hellenistic Jews and the, the non-Hellenistic Jews, and they kind of, they were jiving at that point of the New Testament, but before that they were kind of hostile. Um, an example would be, there are things about Greek culture that they liked, there are things about Greek culture that obviously it went against the Torah, so they didn't do it. But like, there's, there's writings about 
priest would leave their duties at the time, they'd be done for the day, and they would go to the local Greek gymnasium or bathhouse, and they would wrestle. So it was just, for whatever reason, a lot of these Hebrew priests really liked to wrestle, so they'd go and do Greek wrestling. Um, so there were things that they kind of picked up on that they really enjoyed um, while trying not to disrupt what the Torah said. And you have some of that, but there are also Jews that are like, no, you cannot live like our Greek at all. And um, that's going to become an issue. Again, um, they're spread around what is now a Greek empire, and they start building what they call synagogues at this time. So by the time we get to Jesus, they're already talking about synagogues. This is where synagogues came from. Synagogues were places so that you could have a place to worship and teach outside of Jerusalem. And uh, so you get your first synagogues at this time. A lot of the Hellenistic Jews are the ones that started the synagogues. Um, again, the, the temple, the importance of the temple is starting to dip. It's still important, but it's not like you need to be there all the time. And so things start taking the place. Um, talking about the Septuagint, this is what was in the Septuagint. We have what was in our Old Testament. Um, there was what they called the Apocry- what we call the Apocrypha with it, which was Tobias, Judas, Baruch, Ecclesiasticus, uh, the wisdom, um, that would be, I think, the, I think that's the wisdom of Solomon. First and second Maccabees, also certain additions that they added to Esther and Daniel. Um, when, they, when they transcribed the Septuagint later on into the Bible, um, the Catholics actually retained those books. So when the Protestant Reformation happens, we drop those Apocrypha books as Protestants, and that's a whole church history thing. Won't get into it today. But just know that when the Septuagint was actually written and they copied what the, the Hebrews were using, uh, those books are the ones that the Catholics kept. And then in some copies of the Septuagint, you have those on the bottom. Uh, the Psalm of Solomon, uh, 3rd and 4th Maccabees, the Epistle of Jeremiah, the Book of Odes, the Prayer of Manasseh, and Psalm 151 are included in some copies of the Septuagint. So there's a little translation stuff. And then you know, this is also the time when they... People are beginning the Essenes, or now they're saying they're not sure if the Essenes or the Sadducees are the ones that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're kind of going back and forth on that. But that's also when they write the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we find. Um, Anyway, going back to the land of Israel, um, there's a Jewish rebellion led by the Maccabees against the Seleucid Empire, and there's a couple reasons why that happens. Uh, First... um, People talk about the abomination of desolation. This is when most people believe the abomination of desolation happened. Talk about that. But just reading from Josephus here. Now, Antiochus was not satisfied either with his unexpected taking the city of Jerusalem or with its pillage or with the great slaughter he had made there, but being overcome with his violent passage, passions, remembering what he had suffered during the siege, he compelled the Jews to dissolve the laws of their country and to keep their infants uncircumcised, and to sacrifice swine's flesh on the altar in the temple, against which they were all opposed themselves, and most approved among them were put to death. So he kills a lot of the Jews that are taking care of things in the temple. He goes in, and just to make a point to the Jews, he slaughters pigs on their altar, and does whatever he can do to totally, I'm boss, this is what I think of your God, this is what I'm doing to your temple. And then he just leaves it empty. Um, 
contaminates the oils. He does a number of things. And that pushes a group that was already getting a little rebellious. Uh, in the narrative of 1 Maccabees, after Antiochus IV issued his decrees, which we just talked about, um, there was a rural Jewish priest from Modin, uh, Mattathias, the Hasmonean, sparked the revolt against the Seleucid Empire by refusing to worship the Greek gods. Um, not only was he mad at the Seleucids, but this guy was also mad at the Hellenized Jews. And he goes and he kills a Hellenized Jew who had stepped forward to take his place and sacrifice him to an idol because he wouldn't. Um, as well as a Greek officer who was sent to enforce that sacrifice. So once he does that, we kind of got a Moses story. He's like, ah, ooh, peace out, I'm out. And so he leaves, and he and his five sons flee to the wilderness of Judah. Uh, Matthias dies, and his son Judah Maccabee leads an army of Jewish rebels to victory over the Seleucids through a number of years, through mainly guerrilla warfare. Um, they weren't lining up on battlefields for the most part. It was very tactic, guerrilla warfare-based. The Jews did not have the number of the Seleucids. Um, not at all. This first started, um, they first started going after Hellenized Jews to make sure that their religion was not going to be corrupted. And five brothers lead this at different times. Um, they actually started going around and destroying the Greek altars and circumcising the Greek Jews. That was their first thing they wanted to do. So some of the Hellenistic Jews no longer believed that you needed to be circumcised. And it became kind of unpopular. It was a very unpopular thing for the rest of the world to be circumcised. So if you were circumcised, you were kind of a joke. It's kind of the way that you were dealt with in that world. So they went around and started forced circumcising people. And then eventually they realized, okay, we're getting some people behind us, some traction, and they start going after the Seleucid troops. Um, they, have five, seven, or they have seven major battles, tons of guerrilla skirmishes. Um, don't want to get into all of them, but even, even through all of that, uh, they, they win. They win... Uh, very persistent. The Seleucids cannot main, maintain control. And then uh, so this is where we start getting. This is where we get into Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, and this is coming from the Shabbat. For when the Greeks, the Seleucids, entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils therein. And this is after they have now taken them back to Jerusalem, and then finally defeated them again in Jerusalem. They had fallen back into Jerusalem. They defied all the oils therein, and when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed against and defeated them, the Hasmoneans are the Maccabees. The Maccabees are going to call themselves the Hasmonean dynasty. Just, they got all official. They made search and found only one cruise of oil with, which lay with the seal of the Kohen, the high priest, uh, but which contained sufficient oil for one day's lighting only. Yet a miracle was wrought therein, and when they lit, lit the lamp, therewith for eight days... The following year, these days are appointed a festival with the recital of Halal and Thanksgiving. Um, so just to give this, you have mass bloodshed in Jerusalem. It's a crazy civil uprising. They finally get the temple back. They get in the temple. And again, they had sacrificed the pig on the altar. They had messed with all the oils. They did find one thing of oil still sealed, which meant it was still clean from the high priest. And they, uh, it burns for eight days, which is more than they thought it was going to burn, and it was a miracle. And that's where you get your, your Hanukkah menorah, and the, the spreading of that. Um, so now we're in Israel, 140 to 
to 37 BCE. Um, they start as semi-independent. They kind of have their own independence going. The Seleucids are kind of backing off. Egypt's not even going to mess with it. Um, this is also the time where Rome is rising. So Egypt and the Seleucids have to start thinking about Rome and what that's going to look like in their future because it's kind of written on the wall for them. Uh, so Judea gets full independence, and they expand in neighboring regions of Samaria, Galilee, Eturia, Perea, and Adumia. They slowly lost their gains, gains, though, as time goes on, as people kind of encroach. Um, political and religious intrigue ruled throughout that dynasty. Some people liked certain things, where, you know, you got to worship God this way, you got to worship God that way. A little bit of infighting, well, oh, that high priest has too much power, we're going to have to take that high priest down. So there's just this whole infighting that happens. Um, they establish a prince and a high priest as power brokers to kind of help rule this nation. Um, uh, Salome Alexandra was the last queen of Judea, which is also interesting. They actually had a queen, which a lot of people think with Jewish tradition, they, they, the Jews didn't have female rulers. They did. Their last ruler was a queen, and uh, she was the last official ruler of Judea. Um, during this time is where you get the rise of Pharisees and Sadducees and also the Essenes. And this is what the country looked like under the Hasmonean rule. So we're getting closer to what modern-day Israel looks like. Um, so this is the last official map of when the Jews were independent. So think about that when we think about modern-day Israel, land claims and things. Um, this falls apart. Um, and Rome has just gotten so powerful that they're just encroaching on everything. Egypt bows the rule to Rome. Um, you get into the whole issues with Cleopatra down there, and she's very Romanized, very Hellenized as an Egyptian. Um, so the Herodian dynasty, based off of Herod, uh, is established by Rome. He comes in um, at 40 B.C., but the Jews keep him out for a good three years. He never can establish control of Jerusalem. It just doesn't happen. Then finally, Rome gives him a little more force. And in 37 BCE, Rome is now in charge of Israel. Um, and Herod ruled until 4 to 3 BCE, like we said. Um, they're not sure on that. They've been finding some coins that make it a little a year later. Uh, he divides between three sons when he dies. So there's actually, at the time of Jesus, there's actually three, three Herods after Jesus' birth. You know, Herod dies, Jesus returns. There's three Herods. Um, the one that we really concern ourselves with in the Bible is Herod Antipas, and he was the son of the original Herod, and he's the one that's interacting in the Bible. Um, Rome kind of likes him. A lot of the Jews hate him. And... He was kind of like a fake Jew and kind of played the game. And so the Herodian dynasty is your last dynasty before they just break everything up again. And uh, the Herodian dynasty actually has a good run. It's almost 150 years for that family, which is fairly impressive considering they were dealing with Rome and rebellion and, yeah, and Jesus. So, um, so yeah, so that's where we're at. Um, that should take care of the history. Let's talk about theology of the Second Temple period. 
And this is important because there's things that are introduced during this time, and there's things that are emphasized during this time that show up all over in our New Testament that didn't really show up in our Old Testament. If you were to read the Old Testament and go to the New Testament, you have all these new people, you have all these new positions, you have all these new ideas. Why are they so worried about resurrection? Why are they now so worried about demons? There wasn't a lot of demon stuff in the Old Testament. Um, I mean, there's passages that definitely talk about them. But why are there fixations on some of this stuff now? And why is Jesus addressing these sectarian groups now? We're not all one Jews. So this is kind of where we're going to get with this. Um, they had answers for fundamental, apologetic, philosophical questions. Uh, they had answers about the origin of evil, sin. Uh, they definitely had thoughts on the spiritual world. And they had thoughts on how you're going to fix all the problems. Um, this is also an era of commentaries. People had both the skills and the time needed to now to create a systematic theology. This had not existed before because we're going from passed down oral translations to now they're leaving kind of the oral. They're, well, I shouldn't say they're leaving the oral. They're keeping the oral, but now they're getting into written word and they're starting to write everything down. Um, and this is important because then if you have stuff written down, you don't need to listen to somebody. You can take the written word home and you can study it. You have access to all of this, and so you have people now that can read the Bible, the Jewish Bible, and they're just going through it and they're eating it up. They're like, oh my goodness, there's a thing here, there's a thing here, there's a thing here, there's a thing, this is all Messiah stuff. How did we miss this Messiah concept as much in the past? So they're, they're able to do that now. Um, and again, just looking into the future of this period, after the temple is destroyed, the Jewish mindset will change and it really slips into what we now have as a rabbinical mode. Uh, beliefs change also in part because they start to separate themselves from Christianity. So there's actually parts after the, the destruction of the temple that the Jews just kind of cut off and you're not allowed to teach. You, just, you don't teach this stuff again. So like, like certain things about the concept of the Trinity, you don't teach that as a Jew after the temple is destroyed and they're moving away because Christianity is starting to make an impact. Um, it is important to note that the current rabbinical lens is not the lens in which Jesus, the apostles, and early church leaders read the Bible. Uh, they spoke and wrote. And that's why we have to understand the views of this time. They had the Old Testament and the additional books to pour through and write commentaries on. The Septuagint allowed foreign, multi-generational Jews to get into the Word. Um, Miriam Brand is a Jew who lives in Israel. She's considered the authority on Second Temple literature and prayers. And I read a very, it was somewhat dry, but it was good. Got some stuff out of it. She has a dissertation um, on Second Temple literature and prayers where she gets to the gist of things. And so you'll see the beginning of some... Uh, the beginning of some theology that Christians just latch onto because the early Christians were reading these books and taking away the same teachings. Um, get it here so I don't have to read it off the screen. Um, talking about the prayers and the writings. And those prayers that reflect a human inclination to sin, both sectarian and non-sectarian, pause there real quick, Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes are your biggest sect. You go denomination if you want to call them denominations to kind of make more sense of it. Even though they have denominational things, they still have a basis that they all believe together. Just like as Christians, we, not, we may not believe that you have to be baptized 
to be saved, but we still share everything else with different churches. Does that make sense? That's how, that's how the Jewish sects were. Um, but in those prayers that reflect a human inclination to sin, both sectarian and non-sectarian, humans are generally described as subject to the innate inclination to sin or even to a condition of sinfulness. Why does this sound familiar? This is Paul all the way. Uh, sometimes described even as a disease, which we read about in the New Testament as it's almost called a disease. Uh, humans are unable to extricate themselves from the condition without divine assistance. It is for this reason that the supplicants turn to God in prayer, expressing helplessness in God's goodness. The idea of an innate, innate evil inclination that cannot be fought without the help of a deity. It's something we carry with us. Um, passages reflect a belief in human free will concerning the decision to sin, while still assuming that humans possess an innate inclination to sin. That's a lot there. So what's that saying is, there are people that believe that you are born in sin, like it's just in your genetic structure, and therefore you're, you just you have sin right away. The Jews took it, and not all Christians believe that. A lot of Christians believe that you're born with the inclination to sin, which means as long as you're going to be born and living, you're going to sin. But until you understand why you're sinning, you know, that age of accountability that people talk about, um, this is a whole issue that they, they tackled and went through. So they, they believe very much what we do as far as you're born with the inclination to sin. Uh, the human capacity to sin must be distanced from God. They're trying to express why things get bad. And as part of the human condition, which is also what we believe, they solve the problem of theodicy, which is origin of evil. That's what theodicy means, basically God and why he allows evil or the origin of evil in regard to sin by emphasizing human free will. They were very much, we serve a sovereign God who does miracles and does sovereign God things, but we also have free will. That's the second temple Jewish mindset. So when people, people get into Calvinism and other beliefs, currently, second temple Jews kind of already had it figured out. Um, they'd already thought this through using all the old scriptures. Uh, they believed foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. So God can have the foreknowledge of everything that happens, but that doesn't mean that he's willed everything to happen that happens. They believe the human inclination to sin was only part of the problem with the evil in the world. And this is an important part, because this is going to play out in the Gospels. Miriam writes that references to the sin-causing spirits of the Watchers in First Enoch 19, 1 through 2, indicates that while the Watcher's story was not an explanation of the origin of sin, it could be used to explain the occurrence of specific sins that seem otherwise unreasonable, such as the worship of demons. Um, the author-redactor of Jubilees also makes a bold move in order to fix the problem of the Watcher's nature and origin. Um, going back to the Watchers, we're talking about Genesis 6. Uh, the Watchers' descendants result from an act of rebellion and sin on the part of the Watchers, spiritual beings, and consequently they act without supervision from the divine sphere. The author-redactor of Jubilees clearly accepts that demons can, in fact, cause sin. However, he wishes to emphasize that these demons function within the divine system and cannot compel Israelites to sin. So the Israelites are looking at it like this. I already have an inclination to sin. I'm human. I'm going to sin. But I also have to worry about demons who are trying to produce a system that will make me sin more. 
They can't make me sin. This is the clear theology. The devil didn't make you do it. That's what it comes down to. The devil, everybody, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. There's that function of free will. You can be influenced. So they start really worrying about the influence of, because they've got the Bible, they're looking and putting everything together. They're like, we're kind of worried about this influence of demonic and these authorities that God has set up over nations. That's a big deal. Um, So they believe that we had an innate sin problem that we have to deal with the external dark spiritual forces who want to influence us. This is sounding very familiar, right? Um, So this is where we're a little bit different than Christian tradition. Why not just appeal to Genesis 3 as modern Christian tradition does for why there is so much evil in the world? Answer, because Genesis 6-5 immediately follows on the heel on the heels of Genesis 1 through 4. Genesis 6-5 is where you learn about all the craziness that's happening in the world, right where God is getting ready to send the flood to wipe it out. Rebellion happens on both sides, and the combo of both sides rebelling together. What happens after we die? We have to fix the death problem, so we know we have a death problem. Genesis 3 gives us a death, sin, and estrangement from God. Genesis 6 gives us the uh, the proliferation of mass evil from rebellious spirits. We go for very little time given to demons in the Old Testament to Jesus actively confronting and putting down the demonic. Gospels are full of Jesus dealing with the demonic. This is the view of early Christianity also up to about 300, which is when Augustine starts talking about getting rid of some of that spiritual world stuff. So this was part of early Christianity. We have to deal with our sinful nature. We have to deal with these powers and authorities that are out there. Same thing Second Temple Jews believed. They adopted that right from Second Temple Jews. Paul talks about it a lot. Um, talk a little about sectarian views. Pharisees believed in the spiritual realm and an afterlife. They believed in the whole Tanakh, which was the whole Old Testament. Sadducees only believed in the Torah. They did not believe in an active spiritual world either. So the Sadducees, didn't, they weren't down with demons and angels. They thought all of that was, that's a gobbledygook. We don't accept that. We're just accepting the Torah. Uh, and the Essenes were the other sect. And they were a little different. Um, some people try to say that John the Baptist was an Essene. I don't know if you can prove that. I don't know if that totally makes sense. Um, but they say that's why there were some oddities with John the Baptist. Um, the Essenes were monastic. They used to live in monks, or they were like monks, basically. They lived in monasteries. They believed along the lines of the Pharisees more, though. But they believed in a spiritual realm and afterlife. They had very specific diet and cleanliness rituals. Rituals. They were known for producing copies of Jewish books. Uh, and they believed, they believed that there would be two messiahs, one of Aaron and one of Israel. That's kind of a big deal because some of them didn't believe in two messiahs. So the Essenes wanted two messiahs. Here are the messiahs they wanted. They wanted the high priest Messiah, and they wanted the king Messiah. That's what they wanted. They wanted one for the line of Aaron and one from the line of David. We got one that did it all. So let's talk about the messianic influence, because by the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus is getting on the scene at the right time. Um, the, The Messiah's window, why they believed one was close why they were worried about the the Messiah at that time. Uh, Number one, they had the fixed time given in Daniel. They were reading Daniel. Daniel was written during this time, so Daniel was a very popular book. Um, Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. 
Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. The Jews held that the weeks were units of seven years. They weren't actual weeks, they were seven years. That puts it at about 444 BCE when the temple was rebuilt until about 33 CE, which was the allotted time. So they believed that was their window. So towards the end of that window, that's Messiah time. Um, They also believed that the second temple would still be around. Um, And after the 62 weeks, back in Daniel here, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and it shall have nothing. Jesus, when he died and he was cut off from God and he went and he did his stuff. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the, the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there will be war. Uh, Psalm 118.26, they were reading that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We got, what a great, good Sunday for that. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They knew that this Messiah had to come while there was a temple around. And what were they most worried about with all the rulers going back and forth with Jerusalem? Their temple. They knew that at any moment, that temple could be gone. Um, The other thing that they thought was that Judah has to be intact. Because they had read their Torah over and over and over again. And Rome was just a threat sitting there. They knew that at any time Rome wanted to snap down, they'd snap down. Uh, Genesis 49.10, this is where they get, they get it. Um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between its feet, until Shiloh comes, which some people feel is another name for the Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Um, according to the book of Ezra, 1, 5 through 8, Judah's position was maintained through the 70 years captivity in Babylon, meaning that Judah didn't depart. It was also intact back into the land until the Romans made the kingdom of Judah a Roman province. At that time, the Sahedrin was stripped of its authority. This is after Jesus. And according to Josephus, the members of the Sanhedrin covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, exclaiming, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. They were worried. They thought that they had, the Messiah is not coming now. The scepter has passed. They didn't recognize Jesus. Jesus had come. Um, so that's, there's this messianic outlook. They think it's coming. You have all the fake messiahs during this time. You have some fake rebel leaders that they thought were going to be the messiah. And then Jesus comes, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes are still looking for the messiah. The Essenes are, are thinking it's going to be two. Um, some of them missed them. Some of them caught it. Um, here's just a summary. The monarchy officially came to an end during this period. The prophecy that aligned with the monarchs also came to the end. So you had all those minor and major prophets that had to deal with royalty and had to do with coming back and reestablishing. That stuff ended. You didn't have any big prophets anymore. Um, the second temple did not have the same status as the first. The synagogues and distancing happen. You have Jews traveling. You have Jews living other places. You have the Jews spread throughout current Western civilization. You have the fragmentation of Judaism. You're starting to break up into denominations, basically. And Judaism looks different than what it did before they left for Babylon. Uh, The word of God went from exclusively oral and became increasingly written text. 
and then you have unprecedented theological exploration and literary productivity. They had the time, they had the books, they got into the Word. So that when you get to the time of Jesus, you had at that point the first time where lots of people had access to the words in their the Word in their own home. They were still doing temple or synagogue, but they had those. And I think here's my opinion on this. I think that that was vital to God giving them a chance to know what the Word says about the coming Messiah. I think that's part of the reason he picked this time. Not only was it Rome and the roads and civilization, I think that the Jews had a good chance to go through the Word and see for themselves and decipher for themselves what is coming for for Israel. And I think that's part of the timing for Jesus was Yahweh wanted to give his people that. Um, Spiritual summary at the end, they know they have a sin-death problem. They have an evil system of spiritual rulers problem. Um, We can talk more about that later. There's a whole lineup on that. They have a sovereign God, but they also realize that they have free will. Um, They have a need for a Messiah, one who will take care of sin, death, and the evil spiritual rulers, and some still wanted the nationalistic Messiah. So that's, that is it. Sorry, that's a lot. But, but that's it. That's that 400 years, there's a lot going on there. And when you get to the time of Jesus, everything is different. And this is why everything is different. This is why the Jews are expecting certain things. This is why the Jews believe certain things. That's why Jesus is casting out demons. That's why Jesus is doing all these things that we don't really even think about if you read the Old Testament and just leave it. Um, you know, we, we've studied. We've got 2,000 years after him. We've studied. We know all the Messiah passages. We know all that stuff. They didn't have access to that. A lot of it was oral. There were some things written down. I mean, when they collected and rewrote and collected the Bible, there were written fragments, but not everybody had it. And then we went to people being able to do it. You know? So, all right, that's where we're at. That's the history lesson for today. Um, so when Tabitha picks up next week, and we see the culmination of God's rescue plan, and everything is set up. So, Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. We also thank you that you give us choices. We thank you that in your sovereignty you decided the time and place and picked the exact moment you wanted the Messiah to return. And Lord, we look back and we look at your mercy and your grace in that decision. Lord, we thank you that you you helped to, to propagate your word coming into that time. And Lord, we, we know that you are a gracious God. And Lord, seeing you move, see your plan through history, see it from the beginning to this, and to know what comes next, and just see the chance to enter back into the kingdom coming, those problems, sin, spiritual, evil spiritual rulers, that Jesus takes care of all of that. Lord, we thank you for making that way. We're truly grateful truly grateful to enter back into the kingdom, to go back to what you gave us in Genesis 1 and 2. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the season that we're in right now. And uh, again, we look forward to that time when you come on another horse. Lord, we love you, and in your name we pray. Amen.